Growing up in today's world is not an easy venture. Our kids are facing difficult challenges as they navigate the teen years while fulfilling the developmental tasks of identity and worldview formation. It's especially difficult for our girls. If you are raising or ministering to kids, you won't want to miss our conversation with Dr. Amy Flavin on the digital playground of social media and how it influences our kids' quest for identity on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, and as always, we have Jason Soshenik with us here. Jason works with us on associate staff at CPYU running our Sexual Integrity Initiative. Jason, welcome. As always, good to be here. <laughs> I, that's, that's, I love, that's always my intro, I know, so I get I to say, say hi. I, yeah. I, need, I need some sort of like tag. Well, I need write a hashtag. Something. I need write something, something new. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. you know, I just look at Happy you and podcast. I go, yeah, there you go. That's good. That's good. <laughs> well, hey, I'm excited about what we're going to do today. We're going to have a conversation a little bit later with a good friend of ours, Amy Flavin, someone that Jason and I both know. And we've uh, worked with her and her husband, Mike, for years. Amy has become an expert in the issues girls face related to social media. She's done some doctoral work and some research in that area. So I can't wait to talk with her about that. But before then, we want to talk about some things that we've found that are happening in youth culture that we think are worth knowing about. And of course, well, I'll look over there as we always do. I'm expecting fully that Kenton and Chris have something up their sleeve for us. We have no idea what it is. Do you have a question? Do you have a quiz? Do you have, what do you have, Kenton? So we have a question for you today. Okay. And the question is, what are your three favorite smells? <laughs> oh, yes. Three <laughs> That is a great smells. question. Three All right. favorite now, smells. Uh, now, the funny <laughs> thing about this is they're really laughing over there because Chris and my wife, Lisa, both in this office, are what I would call super smellers. Uh, do you know any super smellers? And when I say super what, smellers, what I'm not Does saying they're smelly. Cape? Does no. that come with a cape? I'm Super not saying smellers. they're smelly. I'm... Their power of smell is just no, over the top. No, I got what you're saying. They'll get things. I got what you're saying. And what's really funny is that, that we like have someone in the office now on the other extreme, the other end of the spectrum. Can you guess who that is, Jason? Who He's uh, having Hinton? a hard time. No, he's having a hard time smelling it all. Who in our office would? Who is the only oh, person? Cliff. Yeah, there you go. You got it. So Cliff's yeah. having a problem. Like, he can't. Like, and for our listening audience, now we've uh, oh, yeah. essentially noted everyone in yeah. the CPYU office. Right. So Chris and Lisa will, you know, they'll get their sniffers going and they'll be onto a scent. And Cliff's just <laughs> Cliff's just going, I don't smell anything. Cliff will stick his nose right in. It's actually, but it. yeah, he'll stick his nose right in anything we tell him to stick his nose in, and he can't smell a doggone thing. So, and oh, based man. on some of the things he stuffed his nose in, we know he can't smell a thing. So, but three favorite <laughs> oh. smells. Do you have three an answer smells. already, Jason? Or I've, I've got, got two. A... I need my third. 
I, I got. Let's go one at a time. You go first. All right. Okay. I'll give Do you, you one. one. Here's okay. one that just came okay. to mind because we were talking about baseball teams uh, before we came on here. Baseball stadium. When you go into a baseball stadium, oh, and I got to tell you, it was when I was a kid. All right. I think it still smells this way, and I'm almost ashamed to say this, but there's something about this is horrible. Just that combination of cigarette smoke beer i almost you almost feel like you can smell the leather on the baseball gloves even though you're up there yeah. in the stands the fresh cut grass uh, the fresh cut grass great smell um the peanut shells you know whatever else is there i mean it's just the whole yeah. combination of things and i'm telling you i don't want to get off on talking about this but that first time in 1964 when i went to connie mac stadium in september with my dad to see the phillies play the dodgers it was the sights, the sounds, and the smells. And oh, that's smell. what I smelled. Honestly. It almost feels – smells actually, I feel, have a have more of a, a release of memory than do other senses. There's just something about smell that can take you back to a moment. And I am right there with you. I love the smell of baseball stadiums. All I'll right. never forget – I'll never forget either. It's it's incredible. All right. Uh, okay, so, so the first thing I thought of – I'm not as nostalgic as was Walt with his answer. My first thing was bacon. I just absolutely love bacon. There is, I can be in a dead sleep having only slept for 45 minutes and I smell bacon and I am like, bacon! And so, oh man, we're getting ready for our fundraiser. And I saw a picture that had something wrapped in bacon and I said, I just want to make sure that no matter what, those are a part of our entrees because it's bacon. You can't go wrong with bacon. I love the smell of bacon. Bacon has so many fond memories. Oh man, I can't start with all of them, but I'll just say I love bacon. You should nothing, sell. nothing like waking up to the smell of bacon. Maybe you should I love sell it. B- uh, bacon cologne as one of your fundraisers. Ah oh, man, if oh, I could, man, I I just there is something just so good about bacon. I love the smell of bacon. I'll all right, enough. That. enough. I've made it clear. I know. Two. What's yours, Walt? All right, Second I'll give one. you number two. I'll give you a food smell since you came up with a food smell. Cinnamon buns. Fresh baked cinnamon buns. And there's something about that. I mean, and it doesn't even have to be cinnamon buns. It could be pies and things like that. But when you walk into the house and you smell, there's just something that takes me back to childhood or to fond memories, you know, in the kitchen uh, at my house growing up when my mom would make something or at Lisa's house when her mom would make something. So I just, I like that. And I, and, and here, this is, you know, like memories. I remember one time when our son, Josh, who's now 30 was in college, he came home for Christmas break and he walked in the door. And as soon as he walked in the first words out of his mouth where he said, smells like Christmas. And I think huh. it was Lisa was baking something. So I just, yeah, you know, I love that. You know, that's and that's and I'll I'll take it I'll take it even a step further and say, a childhood memory of something being baked was going to Williamsburg, Virginia, and going into the bake shop, and they were making some sort of ginger or spice cookie, which you know that's that's on the same level. Oh. so I love that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What do you got? All what do you right. got? Number two. My next one would be gasoline. <laughs> you know what? I'm with you yes. on that. When I was a kid, I remember There's that. There's something I love about gasoline. Yes. Oh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know why, but gasoline is always a smell. Have you? That, s- that I, hey, I do you don't seek know. it out? I, do you sniff it a lot? Because no, but like I If will, you did, that will, would explain a lot to me. 
I, I, I love, I love pumping gas and smelling gas. I mean, there's, I mean, there are memories attached to it. Like this weekend I was mowing and I smelled the gas and it brings me back to times with my dad and, 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 and doing those things. But like I, <laughs> gasoline is just one of those smells. So that's uh, awesome you know, because uh, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah. That is yeah, yeah. You know, like when you're a kid, it's you, just you like, felt, you wondered yeah. if you were supposed to like it or not. Oh, I thought yeah. I, I thought I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. You know, now I do when I take cognitive tests and things like that. You realize that. Okay. All right. So you're you're going with something kind of we could say chemical or mechanical there. Okay. So yeah, I'm going to yeah, switch my last one. I was actually going to say boxwood bushes because that yeah. goes back to Williamsburg, Virginia oh. as well. We have some okay. at our house. And whenever I'm cutting the grass and I walk by them and I turn my nostrils away from the gasoline, I smell the boxwood. But but here's here's my chemical smell. And maybe you're too young to remember this, but stuff that comes fresh off in school, fresh off the Ditto machine. Do you know what the Ditto the what machine, machine is? Ditto, D-I-T-T-O. I think that's what it was called. It's like, like the mimeograph machine. So yeah. it was like this, um, you know, it was this thing where you turned a handle. Some of them, you know, were electric and they would, uh-huh. you, it was a, the early the version of a copy of machine. Copy machine. Oh, yeah, and you would okay. use a, a stencil and okay. uh, I know that none of this is making sense to you, but we would I we would a, actually I have a picture in my head. I don't know. If yeah, it's we right. loved quizzes and we hated quizzes. We hated the quiz because we had to take the quiz, but we loved them because when they hand out handed out the teacher would hand you the paper. Everybody was just sniffing this thing because it was this fresh. <laughs> it's kind of like a sharpie. Smell. Do you, do you, Chris? Do you remember that at all, I, or something? I do have a few experiences with that. I don't remember the smell as vividly as you do, but I do remember there being a smell. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm not <laughs> just listening to you answer takes us back to one of our other questions about that Kenton asked about the imaginary friend. I'm just gonna mention this, we don't have to get into it. But afterwards <laughs> after Jason, were you here when we shut down? Yeah. And he was saying it was imaginary friend was yeah. C J Raisin. C J his, his imaginary friend was named C J Raisin. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, we're not going to get into uh, that. Okay. He was sniffing right, too much so, gasoline. So, Give us your third. So my third. N- next episode. Third. I said you know we're I'll, not getting into it. Next episode, you know I'm going to have to reveal something All right, about okay. you. Uh, well, to reveal? Oh. What, are you, are you embarrassed by that? Heck yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, uh, the third one that I would say is uh, this is my nostalgic one, but there is no smell that takes me to as many memories as when I'm in um, the woods and I just I can smell the pine, or I can oh, smell yeah. The, the, yeah, like yeah. after a rain or like oh, yeah. early morning. There are so many great memories that I have of of that smell. And in, in fact, when I there is something with that smell, I can sometimes you know, and and the Northwest will get some of that sometimes at certain times of the year, it, even at our house. And it just it's a calming and peace. There, there's almost this this rest that that yeah. lands upon me over that smell, and. <clears throat> that is that is probably one of the most powerful smells that 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 exists. It's one that just allows for me, and I almost take a Sabbath in the moment that I smell it because yeah. it's just so powerful. And I look forward to that smell every summer. That's like when we're at the lake, you know, and you're on the lake. Lisa and I like to go out on the mm-hmm. lake. Yeah. Late at night when it's dark and the water's still, it's very quiet. You look up at the stars and you smell. The woods and the smoke from people's fires that just is floating across oh, the lake. Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I thought good. you were gonna say you smelled the stars, but well, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, 
I, I can't. I'm just. I'm just now. I'm all side. I'm off track because I'm thinking about <laughs> C.J. Raisin. Well, uh, <laughs> all right, let me ask you a question. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask I'll one more question. Yeah, one go more question. Yeah, yeah, go for it, Chris. Okay. What do you know? What C.J. Raisin's favorite smell was? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what it was? Uh, I heard it through the grapevine <laughs> that he really liked the smell of chocolate chip cookies. Okay, chocolate chocolate chip cookies. All right. Well, we're going to investigate oh, C.J. Raisin some good. more. So, all right, good. Well, let's talk about well, we youth culture, Jason. To, yeah, we should probably get to some youth culture news. And, yeah, now that we just wasted 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> hopefully yeah, people man. enjoy that. I'd love to know. Hey, look, if, if people are able to comment on our podcast, we'd love to know what your favorite smells are. So are we at that point yet? We're able to take comments, or did I just – Expect uh, something that we're not. We're at getting the moment, there. We can't. Okay, we're getting they can there. Send oh, us all right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, podcast. go yeah. ahead and email us. Or podcast at cpyu.org. What is it? Yeah. Podcast at cpyu. Podcast at cpyu.org. We'd love to know what your favorite smell is. Kent, I gotta say, that you don't was want a them to send question. their favorite I like smell. That question. Thank you. It's about time. Yeah. No, well, don't send your favorite smell. <laughs> they, we're working with youth workers here. I can't imagine what we get. You know, if that's the uh, case. So, all right. Let's talk about youth culture, Jason. What do you have? Yeah, so so I'm starting on the lighter side since we kind of had a, a little bit of the lighter side, but but I'll just start with uh, uh, one. Uh, I just love the title of this study finds video games may have positive effects on kids. Had I known this when I was when I was younger, I would have used this as, as a tool in my weaponry uh, weaponry with my <laughs> with my parents. Uh, yeah, say that three times fast. But uh, what they are finding, uh, the Journal of Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology, say that three times fast, wow, uh, they correlated the amount of time child children played video games with school performance. And they, uh, after adjusting for the child age, gender, and number of children, the researchers found that high video game usage was associated with 1.75 times the odds of high intellectual functioning and 1.88 times the odds of high overall school competence. Um, and then they went further. There were no significant associations with any child self-reported or mother or teacher reported mental health problems. The researchers also found that more video game playing was associated with less. So there's there's almost like this 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 uh, curve that happens, this bell curve that happens that, that's associated with it. Less um, less they what? Said, less relationship problems, right? <laughs> Yeah, less, okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. With peers. So factors associated with time spent playing video games included being a boy, being older, and belonging to a medium-sized family. However, having a less educated or single mother decreased time spent playing video games. And uh, the one of the authors of the, the study says that video game playing is often collaborative leisure time activity for school-aged children. And they go further. These results indicate that children who frequently play video games may be socially cohesive with peers and integrated in the school community. Going further, we caution against, and this is really important because this is where uh, I, I think a study like this is really uh, keen, uh, or at least that we need to pay attention to what's said. It says caution over interpretation here. Um, it's setting limits on screen usage, usage remains an important component of parental responsibility as an overall strategy for student success. But I do think that, that one of the things that this study points out is there is something to this that can actually have a positive impact. And it goes back to everything that we always talk about. Um, there are ways in which we can allow for the technology around us to be used in a way that glorifies the creator. And, and I think that there, there are ways here that we can point to and look at right. that allow for us to use it in a way that glorifies. Agreed. Agreed. I, I would go back to that last sentence, though, and just say you need to, you need to watch because uh, yes. we have to set limits. And so we don't want to I use this as an important. excuse. Of course, a whole bunch of seventh graders will now be 
quoting this research to their moms and their dads. Okay, so here's one. Because I've we got, have a lot of seventh graders listening that's, to this. Well, we do. And I actually wondered if maybe a seventh grader didn't you know, fund that study right there. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of wondered that too. So last night, um, I'm driving home. And uh, just a short two-mile drive from uh, the local the local little strip mall here to my house. I'd run down to the grocery store. And um, cars coming the other direction and crossed the center line on a narrow, narrow road. And I had to jog over a little bit to the right. And as the car went past, I saw it was a younger girl, probably a high school girl, maybe a college-age girl. I don't know, but it scared me. And she crossed the line. She had her head down. Um, and all I can assume is she was texting while she's driving. And I, I, mean, I think about this a lot because I really think we're moving into a day and age where every family and every youth worker, every neighbor is going to know somebody or be related to somebody who either is victimized by or perpetrates some horrific event due to texting while driving. So in 2013... Uh, distracted driving was a factor in 16% of car crashes in the United States, killed 3,154 people, injured 424,000. Um, the feds are saying that 587,000 Americans are driving with a cell phone in their hand at any given moment. So right now as we talk, that's happening. One in 10 teen drivers involved in a fatal crash was distracted, and a quarter of teens send a text every time they drive. Now, we do know that uh, as of now, 46 states have outlawed texting while driving. By the way, this research is something I read this weekend in Wired Magazine in an article called uh, Don't Text and Drive, Experts on Ways to Stop. I'll just mention two ideas they have. One is to enlist kids. And what they're saying is kids around 10 years old are very attuned to rule breaking. And so what they're suggesting is getting scolded by a child is more likely to change an adult's behavior than the tiny risk of a law with a fine. So what they're suggesting is that kids be recorded and the car is programmed to blare their, you know, pushback, um, you know, their their um, words to parents they're scolding uh, when, when the Bluetooth detects phone use. Here, here's the other one. I'll give you this real quick and then we can move on. In 2010, this is called, they say, play the lottery. In 2010, Sweden used a speed camera to find all drivers going too fast on one road. Then it selected a driver who obeyed the limit and gave them all the money. So now they're saying, find, this is an yeah. idea, find a way to detect dangerous phone use, run the same program with texting. So if yeah. you're not texting, that, that, that's actually a good idea. Well, that, that, whole, that whole idea is based upon something Volkswagen did called the Fun Theory. And uh, you can actually check it out on YouTube, uh, Fun Theory Volkswagen, and, and it uh, has to do with stoplights. It was really intriguing, and I, I think they, they're on to something. Yeah. Uh, well, the next, next one that we have is, is just pointing to strong evidence for double standards among adolescents regarding sex. You know, uh, we talk about this often on our podcast. There's a lot that we um, do in our classroom presentations for Project 619 that uh, that looks at reasons why and uh, a teen might choose to have sex and it's really interesting the responses I get from males and the, the ones I get from females but one of the things that has been consistent for the last 12 13 years that I've been doing this has been um, the response that I get from from um, uh, males and females with regards to status it always being different they're always being a double standard 
and and we've always opened it up for for conversation. Well, now there's there's some research that's backing this up and actually showing some some different aspects of how this is playing out. Um, actually, there was a research done by Penn State there in your uh, area uh, through a Prosper project. It was a longitudinal study uh, that was looking at 28 school communities in rural Pennsylvania and Iowa. And what did they find? Uh, what they found first reaffirmed what we believe. Girls experienced a 45 be decrease, 45% decrease in friends after having sex for the first time, and boys enjoyed an 88% increase in popularity. This is something that we hear about often in the classroom. Girls have sex, it, it affects relationship. Guys have sex, it, it affects the relationship in, in, in a positive way. But in a surprising twist, the team observed that girls who reported making out but not having sex gained 25% more friends. So, so it, it was their strength brought them more, more, more friends. Whereas boys who were seen as weak only made out and only made out lost almost 30% of their friends. And so, I, I think that when we see reports like this, we have to be able to be aware and engage in these double standards. They are happening. Um, they're not changing, and I think that with the use of social media and the way that, that teens are now engaging in conversation, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of this changes. And so I think one of the things that, that can come out of a study like this is our need to be aware of the influence that – and that's why I'm glad we're having this podcast today because it, it talks about the influence that social media is specifically yeah. having on adolescent girls. Yeah, and, and just to mention this real quickly, to summarize – you know, basically what we see is guys, in terms of uh, being the sexual aggressors, um, are seen as heroes. And girls, I mean, that's that's the way guys are described, you know, in terms of their yeah. behavior on social media. Girls, you know, sexed or, or whatnot, and then you, you start with some of that slut shaming, and they, they get labeled as sluts. So there is that double standard. We're not saying fix the standard. We're saying let's deal with the heart. And, and look at the behaviors, yes. but we need to be aware of this to push back on it. Okay, uh, so Jason, uh, do you know, do, are, are you familiar with the name Naruto? Do you know who Naruto is? Uh, Pablo Naruto? No, I have no idea who Pablo <laughs> yeah. Naruto is, but Naruto <laughs> is this, okay, so Naruto is this now famous monkey from uh, uh, an island in Indonesia, and uh, what's called a macaque monkey, all right? And so this photographer by the name of a British photographer, wildlife photographer named David Slater traveled to the reserve in Indonesia where this monkey lived. And he followed this group of 25 crested black macaque monkeys in the jungle, set up his uh, camera on a tripod and walked away from it. And the monkeys approach his camera. They're fascinated by the reflections in the lens and they start playing with the camera and actually taking photographs of themselves. The monkeys are taking selfies. And one particular monkey, who is named Naruto, they've named him Naruto, took several selfies, and eventually they were published in an article about this man, David Slater's interaction with the monkeys. And then he published a book called Wildlife Personalities, published in 2014, and one of the selfies of this this monkey Naruto took of himself was on the cover. Now, I, the whole thing is just crazy when you think about it. It's kind of funny. And, and now it takes a, a weird twist. And this is where it becomes just bizarre. I'm just going to pass this on informationally. But in September 2015, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, filed a complaint in U.S. District Court in California 
naming the monkey that they've called Naruto as the plaintiff. And they're saying that the monkey selfies resulted from a series of purposeful and voluntary actions by Naruto, unaided by the photographer, David Slater, which resulted in original works of authorship. And what they're saying is, it's copyrighted. It's copyrighted by the monkey. They're <laughs> suing on behalf of the monkey. So it just, I just find it interesting. That's where our culture's gone. Now, just to follow up very quickly, in January, just a few months ago, uh, district court, U.S. District Judge, ruled in favor of the defense to dismiss the case, which is great news. But yeah. just keep an eye on this kind of stuff Thank because, goodness. again, it says something about who we are. I'm just glad it wasn't a selfie of you. I, I'm glad you, you you made sure that. You know, I don't take that. those, and there's good reason. I mean, I just just <laughs> look at me. I don't take selfies, so. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll let that be. Um, well, hey, moving on to the next one. <laughs> what, 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 uh, if you, you know, CJ CJ Raisin doesn't take selfies either. <laughs> okay, Raisin, go on. Give right. us another story <laughs> yeah. here. Well, here, uh, very quickly, if you if you unless you've been sleeping under a rock. Uh, you're probably familiar familiar with the the some of the articles that are that are happening in Time with regards to pornography. Time did a uh, uh, dedicated their entire issue to whole cover story that was happening. worth reading. Yeah, yeah, it's in, yeah, it's definitely worth your time, especially for for parents and for youth workers. One of the articles was how porn is changing a generation of girls. Again, we talked about this on on the podcast that you and I discussed. Uh, this is an overarching theme throughout many of the podcasts, and it's going to be one that we talk about today. Uh, but they said in the study that um, uh, that behaviors in popular pornography, nearly 90% of the 304 random scenes that were contained uh, in, in this study uh, included sexual aggression toward women uh, who nearly always responded neutrally or with pleasure, and more insidiously, women would sometimes beg their partners to stop then acquiesce and begin to enjoy the activity regardless of how painful or debasing it is. And on a side note, this is why I, I think issues of sexual coercion and sexual abuse are happening more and more because what we see is acts that have happened in pornography being acted out in real life. Um, now, I've quoted this, this research before, but Generation X is the study, is another study that was done, um, and it said that 90% of men and one-third of women have viewed porn porn during the preceding year so and i would i would argue that this number is continuing to grow whenever you come to issues of sexual behavior it the stats don't always show what's really happening behind closed doors um, and what we find is that we're still learning that women's sexuality um, is is only in existence for men's pleasure and and this objects. is having objects yes, this is having tremendous impact on the way that that then women show themselves on social media. This has impact on how men perceive themselves. This is having impact then on how women perceive men. It's just something it, that we need to be aware of. And if you have not taken the time to look at some of these articles in time, please do. This is one yeah. of many that I think that we need to take time to read. Mm. Let me give you one more here. And this is related, and I think it's going to be um, an unfortunate segue I believe, into what we're going to talk about after the break. And uh, this is some research that's coming out now and, and n numerous stories just this week about the rise among adolescent girls in the U.S. of genital cosmetic surgery. I'd never heard of this before, and I guess part of that is because, you know, I'm a guy. But the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists 
has now warned health professionals, they're, they're warning their professionals, of a new trend that's emerging among adolescent girls, them coming in and asking for genital cosmetic surgery. Now, this is the difference. When you talk about surgeries, the same thing with plastic surgery, there's plastic surgery that is done for medical reasons so that a person can have um, a problem corrected. When it's a genital cosmetic surgery, this is not done for medical reasons. This is purely cosmetic. It's about appearance. And what's happening is the experts are saying that they're worried that a growing number of girls, more and more girls, are now going to come to doctors in the hope of having a part of their external genitals removed. And this is a procedure known as labiaplasty for the simple reason that they don't like how it looks, that it is uh, affecting their identity. That, uh, and, you know, we, we're concerned about how we do our hair. We're concerned about our body shape. We're concerned about our complexion. We're concerned about the clothes we wear. If you're a girl, you're talking about concerned about the size of your breasts, the shape of your body. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And now it's come to this. And I think, Jason, that what is most alarming about this is we've seen, even at younger and younger ages, how our identity is wrapped up in appearance and how appearance then is is wrapped up in sexuality and hypersexuality sexual performance and and who we think we are so you know springing off of what you had just talked about with the articles in time women are objectified and now they're objectifying themselves and trying to conform to an image that is just just absolutely alarming so well hopefully well hopefully on this podcast what we'll get to is we'll be able to have Amy address some of these these aspects specifically identity yes yes and what we're going to do after we take a break here is come back and talk to our good friend Amy Flavin Amy's going to talk to us about some of what she's learned in regards to teenage girls and social media how that shapes them how that influences them and what I'm really looking forward to is not just that information Jason but hearing a little bit how as a grandfather now uh, as a youth worker, you as a parent, you know, what are some of the things that, that we can do to push back on this, on these pressures, these realities that are, you know, some would say shaping kids, I would say misshaping kids. And so when we come back, we'll have a great conversation, a helpful conversation and a hopeful conversation with our friend Amy Flatter. Stay with us. Did you know that you can bring CPYU to your church, school, or community? One of our greatest joys comes from being face-to-face with parents, youth workers, educators, grandparents, and pastors. If you'd like to have us come and present a CPYU seminar in your area, simply go to our website at cpyu.org and click on the Seminars tab at the top of the page. You can see the list of our speaking staff along with topics and information on how to book a seminar. We'd love to come your way for face-to-face training and ministry. Well, welcome back to this edition of Youth Culture Matters. And uh, today we're going to be talking about adolescent girls and some of the issues they face. Jason, you and I have the opportunity to speak to kids a lot and spend a lot of time with kids. And we've been able to see over the course of our years of doing ministry changes, not only in the culture, but in how the culture is shaping kids. And just just for a minute, let me ask you about girls, all right? Don't think about, about boys, but think about the girls you've had the opportunity to minister to over the years. 
Real quickly, just off the top of your head, are there two or three things that you can think of that you've seen as real changes, areas of concern uh, in terms of what you're seeing happening in the lives of girls? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, just in the last decade, it's been amazing how quickly things have changed. I, I think real quick, the, the, the two things that just come to my mind right away are um, the influence of social media and its impact on identity, especially among um, adolescent females. Uh, the second thing is, is and this I think even relates to the first, and we've talked about this earlier in, in this podcast, but um, porn and its impact on female sexuality. Yeah. I think pornography has had a tremendous impact, and I think it even plays out in that first part, which uh, with regards to social media. I think it's in some ways modeling some of the expectations that pornography has placed upon uh, women specifically, um, and and then adolescent females. Yeah. Uh, so I, two that you would have. Do you have two that you would say, or two or three? Well, obviously the things that you've mentioned there, but I think uh, body image is a big one. You know, just the pressure uh, to be. I, I remember 25 years ago, this girl, an email exchange with a young girl. I was doing an online survey, and a 16-year-old emailed me back and said, you know, that was when kids were emailing, by the way. And she just said, you know, the toughest thing for me is the pressure to be thin and to be perfect. And and I think that that has just really ramped up over the years. So, of course, social media has contributed to that. But I would say, you know, just to add on to that, because you, you mentioned some things I would mention, but the time that's spent creating identities, uh, false identities, identities that are not who I really am, and just the whole selfie culture and just how it's not a new identity week by week, but it can be a new identity hour by hour. And minute kids by are minute. just yeah, minute by minute and kids are just consumed with this. So yeah. These and these are the kinds of things, by the way, that in ministry and if you're a youth worker or in parenting, if you're a parent, you need to be aware of these trends because they're shaping our girls, they're shaping our boys as well. And we need to push back on it. I think that the gospel speaks to all these things, and so it's not just knowing the gospel, but knowing how the gospel speaks. You know, I always go back to John Stott and dual listening, listening to both the, the Word and the world, and we listen to the world in order to know how to bring the light of God's Word or where to, where to shine the light of God's Word. So what we're going to do in this podcast is we've invited a good friend of ours, Amy Flavin, in. And Amy's going to help us listen a bit to the world, specifically the world of girls. And let me just tell you a little bit about Amy. She can fill in the blanks as well. But I've known Amy for goodness sakes. Amy, how long has it been? I mean, since really the the mid-'80s. So it's been over 30 years, right? 30 years. Yeah, 30 years. And first met Amy uh, when I met her husband, Mike, who's been doing youth ministry with Amy for over 35 years. Mike and Amy now live in New Providence, New Jersey. I love to go up there. Uh, to their church. Their their congregation's been very supportive of us here at CPYU, and uh, we love traveling up there, Lisa and I do, to be with Mike and Amy and the folks up there, their family as well. By the way, Jason, you'll be interested in this. Uh, New Providence is actually uh, basically where I was born. Lived the first three years of my life there, so it's fun to go back and see old haunts that I have absolutely no memory of, uh, but I'm making memories as I go up there. Uh, but right now, uh, Amy is working as a licensed professional counselor. She's a therapist, does a lot of work with girls, and then completed, how long ago was it that you finished your doctorate? A couple of years? Two years. Two years ago. And tell us about that, what your work was in in your doctorate, and then anything else I've missed 
about you, Amy. I'm I'm really curious because I th- this is why I'm excited to have you on here. You've got youth ministry experience. You've got experience as a mom. You now have experience as a grandmother, which you know Lisa and I are getting that you know grandparenting, uh, but also as someone who's worked very hard to understand girls and their issues. So talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, especially your doctoral work. Okay. Well, as, as uh, Walt said, I've, Mike and I have been in youth ministry for many, many years and seen a lot of changes over the years. And we have had the privilege of being in the lives of adolescents um, in so many different circumstances and over so many years. Um, in addition to being a, a therapist, I'm also a psych professor at Nyack College in Manhattan and teach adolescent psych and child psych and um, have had the privilege of being in, in students' lives as well as adolescents' lives in private practice. Um, kind of out of that, I've really grown into a very specific interest in adolescent development and in particular taking a look at identity development in adolescent girls as we've kind of had this unusual sort of front row seat being in youth ministry um, over the last really 35 years of watching adolescents sort of traverse that developmental stage and watching all the changes that are going on in the culture that also impact um, both boys and girls. Um, But those changes in the culture impact um, the, the development of adolescence and in particular um, identity development. And as, as Eric Erickson describes an identity development, that is the stage, that is the primary task, the social emotional task of adolescence when an adolescent kind of figures out not just who they are, but what values they identify with. And then they choose goals that they will pursue based on those values. And those values are um, how they value their body, how you how they value things like work, how they value family, um, how they value friends. And as part of that, they incorporate the feedback from the people around them. And what I've seen in particular among young girls and what I did my research for my doctorate on was um, how they incorporate this enormous amount of feedback that they get from social media into their developing identity. What do they do with that? How does it affect their values? How does it affect their behaviors? How does it affect how they present themselves and and ultimately how they feel about themselves in the social situations that they find themselves in? Okay, let me ask you this. Did you, was it your all your years of youth ministry experience that really raised this as an issue for you to study as a researcher then in your doctoral work or did you just stumble upon it based on you know there's a need here that you know that I've got to I've got to fill a gap or was it really man I've seen these girls over all these years I think it was a combination I think the work in youth ministry very very much impacted that because I did work more with the young women obviously than than the boys um but also seeing families and adolescents in my practice and seeing the messes that they got themselves into and the distress, that genuine distress that social media was creating in their lives as well as the lives of their families and in their friendships and in their social circles and their peer groups. Um, So I think it really was kind of a coming together 
Um, obviously, what ended up in my in my office was generally at a more serious level than some of the stuff that I talked about with some of the students um, via the youth ministry, although there were certainly, we've seen some pretty serious things going on there as well. Um, and adolescents just don't seem to have this ability to foresee where many of their behaviors are going to end up. Hmm. So, and, so understanding that um, by the time they sit down across from you in a counseling situation, in a therapy situation, is it is it reasonable to assume that at this point there's a crisis? I mean, you, yes. Okay, so there's a crisis. Yeah. Do you think that we're making huge mistakes by just being as parents or as youth workers ignorant to what's happening out there, and that leads to the crisis because we don't take preventive steps? I mean, I'm making an assumption here that, at least to me, seems mm -hmm. extremely reasonable. Um, I, are you is that what you see consistently? I, yes, I could not agree more. Yeah. Most adolescents, the vast majority of adolescents and now younger than adolescents, early adolescents and even prepubescent boys and girls are being handed a device yeah. that kind of opens up the world to them with very few limits and boundaries. The vast majority hear nothing from their parents in regards to how their any kinds of expectations about how this will be used. Yeah. Um, the young women that I worked with in, in my research I asked them about that. And what what, what was them. their age in the research? Their ages were 14 to 18. Okay. And then what's, in talking about these problems and these issues, what is the earliest age that you've seen in a counseling situation where you've got kids who are dealing with issues related to social media and identity? Probably in my counseling room, um, I haven't seen anything younger than 12. However, I do a, I do a lot of work with parents and the use of their the phone comes up every single time and parents talking to me of younger children elementary school age children and trying to figure out how to manage that in their child's life and also unfortunately having this generation of parents who very often do not feel empowered to be parents and are very, very concerned about walking this line of kind of friendship with their children, which very often makes them not um, stand up for some of the boundaries that they need to have, in addition to the fact that they themselves grew up with zero technology. So they're navigating their own use of technology while they're trying to figure out what to do in their kid's life. Mm. What do you think when it comes to working with the parents that come into your counseling session uh, is the reason, I mean, what are some of the suggestions that you give when you're counseling uh, parents that one, um, are afraid to toe the line, but two, are maybe dealing with some of the same things that their adolescents are when it comes to phone use, when it comes mm -hmm. to um, how invasive and how intrusive it typically is. So what are some of the things that you, as you're engaging that, do you see, and then how do you address those? I, I think very often what I'm seeing the parents themselves dealing with and what they're, they're dealing with similarly in the lives of their adolescents is kind of containing and controlling the compulsivity that comes with the use of the phone, um, being able to put it aside being able to turn it off and, and to not have to constantly be looking. 
um, at the phone. And then again, figuring out how do you, what kinds of rules should you have? Um, I generally am trying to suggest to parents that particularly with young children that they should have passwords. They should be able to look um, even with teenagers um, I'm talking to parents a lot about how much pornography is accessed on phones and whether it's their child or not, it might be someone sitting next to them in a classroom that's showing their child pornography, um, accessing it on their phone. So I'm talking to them about pornography um, and, and also that they really do need to be aware of all of the social media apps that are out there. They need to become familiar with the terminology. They need to know what they do, and they need to know what apps their kids are using. So as a counselor, you have one hat, and then as a youth practitioner, as someone that's doing work in youth ministry, uh, obviously you overlap some, but um, you're going to have parents both that come in uh, into your office as uh, uh, seeking counseling. Then there's also going to be parents in the youth ministry, and I'm just really curious when it comes to age of first, uh, statistically 12 years old is typically the time when most um, adolescents receive their, their first phone. Um, so I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on that. Is, that. is that the right age? Is it too soon? Is it too late? And, and how do you uh, coach parents, prepare parents for then the process of um, having that for the very first time? Uh, that being placed in their home, or like you said, regardless if they are the ones that own the phone, their peers have the phone. And so there's a, an issue of addressing. So I, I'm just curious how you address some of that um, when specifically when it's in your own youth ministry and you're seeing this come up. And could I could I just interject there for a minute because that yeah. stat you just threw out of, you know, I, I'm always suspicious of those stats because they get dated so fast. And of course, you're yeah. always wondering about the, you know, the validity of the research True. as well. But let me just throw this into what Jason just said, Amy, because a couple of weeks ago, and we, we may have mentioned it in a podcast, I can't remember, but there was one survey that came out that said that 53% of kids have their own phone by the time they reach the age of seven, by their seventh birthday, 53%. So it it's much younger than the 12 years old. And you're, I mean, there you're just talking about developmentally, just what a difference from 12 years old, you know. It, 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 and, and it boggles my mind, you know. But, but, but again, I'm not a parent of a, of a seven-year-old, so I, I don't understand really the pressures again. But, but go ahead, Amy. I was, I'm thinking what a, one of the most important things that needs to happen and what I'm trying to emphasize to parents in that I speak with by our youth ministry, as well as those I work with in counseling, is the importance of modeling. How you use your phone is going to impact how your child does. And a child and an adolescent is not going to have the ability to internally um, monitor and limit themselves if we don't first limit it from the outside by setting, setting some limits and some parameters. Um, so they, they need to have parents who are willing to say, first of all, put your phone on the counter at night. I know parents who have a lockbox. They put the phones in a box at night and they're on the kitchen counter and they all do it. Um, um, I know others who have, I'm encouraging them to have quiet hours in the evening when their kids are supposed to be doing homework. Um, you know, no texting in the middle of the night, no sleeping with your, your phone under the pillow, that type of thing so that 
they're stepping back from that. Um, I think one of the things I'm so often hearing adolescents say is that what they use their phone for is to um, prove themselves, to make it look like they have a life, make it look like they're a member of some group, and, and they experience anxiety, legit anxiety, at the idea of not being able to be a part of that. Um, so there's this new arena of anxiety when an adolescent feels left out via because of what's going on on social media and perhaps a parent is saying they can't be a part of it or they have to have quiet hours and they can't use their phone or something along those lines. So, so um, anybody of any age, really, during their teenage years or their adolescent years, uh, the formative years, went through this quest for identity formation. But as you described this 24-7, being wired up, uh, tethered to the phone, uh, always online, always engaging, that's created, uh, that's created a 24-7 round-the-clock pressure that causes anxiety, as opposed to when I was in middle school, I'd feel that when I got on the bus right. until I got off the bus. Yep. And because perhaps, it is, yeah, not as intense. Yeah, and it, it is end. how they build social capital. Yeah, yeah, so it the likes. It is the vehicle for social capital and presenting yourself, positioning yeah. yourself. Yeah, well, Amy, um, within your social group. Yeah, Amy, let me ask you this, and and um, maybe just hit a few things here before we take a break. Uh, but based on, and you've hit on some of these things, but based on your research and your time spent with kids and families in a counseling situation, what are your greatest concerns as a researcher and as a therapist? I think. The one of my greatest concerns is how quickly things go viral and the adolescents in inability to foresee that that is evidence of, you know, what we do know about brain development, right. um, that they really can't foresee where things will go as much as they think they're tech savvy um, and things can go viral and go downhill very, very quickly. Um, so I, th I think that is, that is a great concern. Um, and then the, the compulsivity that comes with it, they simply cannot put it down. Um, and it is, there is this constant checking and for young women in particular, when they're checking social media, it almost always leads to this state of comparing themselves and the self negativity that comes from that is is of concern to me because they so often find themselves on the downside and if not they're still then positioning themselves in a well then maybe i'm better than someone else so this constant state of comparing takes a toll on them. it's like being in prison almost you know when you think about it i've been reading a lot about this and and i can't imagine you know what it would be like to be a teenager and struggle with that and, and then just looking ahead 10 to 15 years when these girls and even the guys you know come of age they're 25 they're 30 years old they're they're moving into the workforce they're entering into relationships perhaps who knows where that's all going to go you know we talk about that jason with the sexual integrity initiative but you know you get married you have children what is this going to do to parenting uh to the way that we engage with our spouses with our families and 
yeah, yeah, so it's just so hard to, to and scary to think ahead to exactly what's yeah. going to happen here. Hey, can I ask you a quick question, and then we'll take a break. One more question. What have you guys done in the youth ministry there at the Presbyterian Church in New Providence? Do you have any – has Mike instituted any policies on retreats, Bible studies, youth group meetings, gatherings? What are some of the practices that, if any – that you've instituted that have been very practical to push back on this? We really strongly, our students, strongly encourage our students to take a break from technology. When they go on retreats, most of them will not leave it home, but we ask them to keep it turned off, to just give themselves a break from that. Um, we, during their SALT meetings, it's up to the SALT group, in most of them, they put them in a pile in the middle, and they don't answer them. They don't look at them during their SALT meetings. Right, and just to clarify, those groups. are your small groups, right? The small yeah. group discipleship groups. Um, we have found it has changed how a lot of ministry is done, because even if we do go away on the retreat and we ask them not to, kids' information's flying back, pictures are going back and forth, all kinds of things. Um, when we do our, our longer-term mission trips, when we go to Mexico, everything is turned off for like five days. And the students have expressed a sense of relief um, at not having to check that. They really I hear that consistently from youth workers when there's the time, time to shut other. down, yeah. Yeah. Um, an interesting fact that we've also seen happen is a kid goes away on a retreat, they don't like the food on Friday night, they text mom or dad and say, come get me, the food sucks. And you've got parents who get taken in by that. And then a phone call comes. I heard from my daughter or my son. They don't like this. They don't like that. So it's opened up this communication in the midst of events that you're trying to um, have that keeps, I think, distracting them from even being present. Yeah. Boy, that... that... That text home about the food, that's a whole other issue there. We should do a whole podcast on that. That is unbelievable, you know, with entitlement and things. You know, know what I'd text back? I'd text, clean your plate. You know, just default to what your dad and your mom used to tell you. Well, this is really helpful. We're going to take a break. We're talking to Amy Flavin, and Amy is a longtime youth worker, wife of uh, our good friend Mike Flavin, who's 35 years in youth ministry. Amy's also got a doctorate in education and has studied uh, social networking and its role in shaping the identity of girls, teenage girls. So we're going to come back and we'll talk more about this, get some practical advice and help for youth workers and parents. Here at CPYU, we're taking steps to help parents, youth workers, educators, and anyone else who cares about kids help the kids they know and love navigate the difficult issues of life. We've put together a one-day training seminar called Tackling the Tough Stuff that we can bring to your community. Over the course of the day, Mark Penner and I will provide information and practical steps you can take to address narcissism, pornography, self-injury, depression, suicide, and a variety of other tough issues kids face in today's world. To learn more about bringing Tackling the Tough Stuff to your church or community, go to cpyu.org backslash toughstuff or call us at 1-800-807-CPYU.
Hey everybody, welcome back to this episode of Youth Culture Matters. We've been spending some time talking about teenage girls and social media, how that's shaping them. We're talking to Amy Flavin, who is uh, someone who's worked in youth ministry for 35 years alongside of her husband, Mike, living in northern New Jersey, a bedroom community of New York City in uh, New Providence, New Jersey. And Amy's a therapist, a counselor, and has uh, done her doctoral work in this uh, in this area of trying to, to get an understanding, a read on kids, teenage girls specifically, and social media and how that shapes identity, how that plays into identity formation. And it's sometimes alarming to talk about this. We're going to step out of that for a minute and, and have some fun. Amy, we do this thing with everybody that we bring on. We call it Take Five, and we fire five questions at you, and you have to answer them quickly. Uh, so, like, right away, not a lot of time to think, and then and then as, as quick an answer as you can give. And hopefully you won't get out of breath with this, but we've got five questions for you. So you ready? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. You're not scared, are you? A little bit. Okay. All right. You don't need to be scared. Everybody gets through this. It's not like a test. Okay. Here we go. Number one. Amy, you can have one record album to listen to for the next week. Just one. What record album is that? What would you choose? You two, Joshua Tree. You two. Well, that's a good choice. I like that. Yeah. Have you seen the uh, interview between the little film that's been done between uh, Bono and Eugene Peterson? Have you watched that yet? Yes. Uh, very good, huh? Awesome. Yeah. Jason Some said it, it brought him to tears. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, Jason, I, I didn't mention when we were talking about this before, <laughs> but it brought me to tears as well. I just thought it was yeah. a beautiful thing. And I just, Eugene Peterson is awesome. I, yeah. I wanted to climb up oh, in his lap yeah. and just listen to him talk. Right? So, yeah. Just wanted yeah, to, just, just wanted to, just, yeah, just okay. to listen to him. Man, Please. a few words. Loved it. Yep. Uh, are you trying to get a message across to me there? Man, a few. <laughs> nope. The, okay. the message. Number two, Amy, best book you've read in the last year? I've read a book called Brooklyn that I understand has been made into a movie, but awesome story of a young um, Irish woman immigrating to the United States um, post-World War II. Okay, fiction? It's, it's just fiction or story. nonfiction? Fiction. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. We yeah. love getting recommendations for books, so that's why we ask yeah. those questions. Number three, your favorite place to visit with your husband, Mike, in New York City? The High Line. And what is that? It's, the High Line is a converted railroad bed that is elevated that runs along the west side of manhattan from uh, about oh gosh 14th street something like that up into like 34th street and it's absolutely fantastic just terrific views it crosses over the west side highway and they um, landscaped it it was landscaped by landscape architects and it goes in and out of buildings and it's just absolutely awesome is it a walkway or can you ride a bicycle uh-huh. there or? it's a walkway no okay. i don't no bikes are allowed okay but it's a walkway and it's elevated and uh, it's really beautiful i want to see that that's why we asked that mm-hmm. question number four greatest bit of parenting advice you could give uh, or you could pass on to a young parent be intentional be intentional about the qualities that you want to build into your child. Think about what you want that child to become, what kind of an adult you want them to become, and then strategize how to build that into them. Don't, don't let it be by chance. If you, want to ch- if you want to grow an adult who's compassionate, 
expose them to opportunities for compassion and empathy at a young age and build in those qualities. Good advice. Don't depend on culture to build them in. That's great. Wow. All right, last question, sort of related. Greatest bit of youth ministry advice you could pass on to young youth workers? Find the joy in what you do. Look for the joy in what you do. And don't ever be a lone ranger. Bring people alongside of you to who you can work with, who understand what you do, um, who keep you safe in, in what you do. But find the joy in it. I just find too many stories of, of hardship yeah. and kind of what can become the grind of ministry. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think to stay in it for 35 years, you and Mike have found joy. I've watched that. <laughs> and, you know, you've lived that advice about finding people to come around you because your yeah. team is just yeah, awesome. awesome. I mean, team. I've made some great friends. Yeah, I've made some great yeah. friends. And, Jason, you've been there, too, to speak. So oh, it's a it's great It's just fun place. to be and with those folks, yeah. I speak I speak often of the Flavins when I, when I travel <laughs> and their dedication to – well, it's serious. Their dedication to not only um, their youth but to a church and to a community, it is – Incredible. I just, uh, there's no other word to describe it because I just, um, I, I, I love seeing individuals who are in the midst of their work, specifically, specifically youth workers that just love their community, love their, their church, love their youth, and it just shines through and through um, from, from the activities to the talks to the relationships. And so I, I speak often about you and, and Mike and the work you're doing. It's, it's a lot of fun. So it's a, it's a privilege to be able to come alongside and do this well we've been you know, blessed to be a part of a church that gets youth ministry and supports mm, it and good. that has made it possible to stay for the length of time and to flourish as we have wow so, that's so cool very lucky well um before the break we were we were having some some just uh conversations about parents and uh, really you you in many ways have a captive audience uh, here on this podcast uh, of both parents and uh, youth workers. And, and I would love to hear some of your thoughts um, when it comes to uh, one of the things that you had said that, that you had concern around was how quickly things go viral and uh, some of the compulsivity that comes around checking. And I'm just really curious. Um, there are things, specifically when things go viral, that uh, become a norm. Uh, and I'm just really curious how some of the norms – in quotations, uh, in social media, um, really are, are promoting something antisocial. And I know that you've had conversations around this. I know that with a lot of your work, you've discussed this. I know that we've talked about it. So I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on how some of these norms in social media um, really are more antisocial than they are social. Okay. I um, One of the, the ways in which I, I kind of frame this a lot of times is that Social media is this new playground that adolescents and young adolescents or even pre-adolescents are essentially playing in. And it isn't a single playground because you have the different apps. None of them are using Facebook anymore, but they've got Instagram, um, Snapchat, Yik Yak, all of the the variety of types of of ones. And and now there's GroupMe, which is is another one that's used very widely. Um, so they have these arenas, these playgrounds that they play in. And these playgrounds have rules and norms that develop within them. And unfortunately, um, things go viral, but 
they also develop often sort of in this um, underground type of way because they're not monitored by adults. And so bullying and um, sexting and antisocial behaviors, just use of um, just really bad language, um, the sending of, of naked pictures of each other, those types of things flourish without being monitored. And they do become the norms within these social circles. Um, I had a, an experience about a year and a half ago. Mom called me up. She had a, a son who had gotten involved with just his friends. She was, you know, on, he was doing a lot of Snapchat and a lot of Instagram and basic texting. And all of a sudden she checked his phone one time kind of randomly. He knew that she would be doing that on occasion because she had made that clear. And she realized that his friends were texting him about asking his girlfriend for a naked picture of herself, which he had not done, fortunately. But, um, you know, she obviously, she, great mom, she went straight for it and she confronted him. She had conversations with him. She said, we're going to go talk to somebody because this is absolutely outside of the values of our family. We're not going to, this is not going to happen. But what she realized is that this had become the expectation of his peers that if he was dating somebody, which in eighth grade, what does that mean? But um, that he would ask her for a naked picture of herself. And um, he was being even somewhat chastised. And she could see this via the texts for not for having not done this. Um, and, and that is unfortunately has become somewhat of a norm. And adolescent girls are becoming sort of the victims of that, but they also don't really know enough necessarily to not cooperate. Um, and again, if um, they've really not been talked to about that and had some limits and some values imposed about what's okay, what's not okay, how do you use social media, what do you send to other people and so on, very often they will cooperate with that request because if they don't, they fear then that it will become known that they didn't comply with this norm. Um, and so that is, that's rampant, those types of sort of setting up of these rules and norms within these, within the groups of kids. Um, I think one of the things that is of particular concern when it comes to the bullying aspect of it and and just and that occurs obviously on a spectrum from mild to moderate to more severe, um, but just the the saying of you know really nasty things to each other. But when it's done over social media, the individual does not see the impact of their words, and and what what they're finding and research is actually bearing this out is that it denies that individual who says something harsh or mean or nasty or even downright bullying, it denies them the opportunity to develop empathy because they don't have to see the impact of their words. They click it out on text turn and walk away from it and don't get to see what that does. And so without that um, reaction that could in fact modify their behavior, those behaviors of texting and so on, um, those behaviors may continue 
because they don't see what it does mm. to another student, whether it's their friend or not. Um, and they're Would actually... You... Yeah, so I, I find, because you, you bring up some of the nastiness and some of the the different uh, ways in which communication takes place. Is that something that you would say is more prevalent among adolescent uh, females than adolescent males? Or is that something that overall is happening? That's a good question. I think it is more prevalent among adolescent females. I think boys tend to just shoot back and forth lots of crass stuff. Um, huh. I, there is bullying. Kind of like what among, happens in a schoolyard or in a garage or, or something like the idea you yes. see in a movie. But, this, but what they might say to each other on the playground if they were on a playground hmm. um, or so in a locker room. So is there almost an escalation that happens among adolescent females then? Is it is it just builds, goes back and forth, back and forth between one another? or um, and, and then if there is or whatever uh, – the the nastiness that is being described how how uh, as a as someone that's seeing this how do you step into the middle of that mm -hmm. and, and and help well, even create opportunities for empathy well i think there's this tendency when something like that is going on for those who are sort of spectators spectators to it to decide who they're going to ally with and so they kind of jump on board with one side or the other of what may be being said um, and, and those who choose not to engage in that may actually be ostracized because they don't want to bully, or maybe they actually even stand up and defend somebody. Um, I have talked to a lot of adolescent girls who really struggle with not participating in, um, social media conversations like some of their friends, because they know it's wrong but they also fear being left out. They fear being labeled um, as, as somebody who won't do that um, because it means that they will be left out. And, and so much of social media is about this sense of membership. I'm part hmm. of this yeah, and, and participating in that. I, I wanna ask you about that because let's take it beyond adolescence. You know, We've talked a little bit offline about Nancy Jo Sales in this book she wrote called Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. I'm, I just finished it. It took me a long time to read it. Rarely does that happen. And and I think it's because it's a, it's a tough read, you know, in terms of the content. And I just had a message tonight before we started to record from a friend who's a pastor who he started reading it about the same time I did. He just finished it the other day as well. And I said, you know, what took so long? Well, it was tough. Well, one of the things she talks about in there, and I, I, I love and I hate this phrase she uses. I love it because I think it captures the reality. I hate it because of the reality it captures, is parenting as performance. In other words, what yes. social media has done is we've tapped into this as moms and dads. And here, here's what she says. She says, today parents use smartphone technology and social media to broadcast images of their children to the world. They cultivate their children's online selves from birth or even before, in the living room, even in utero. Social media has given parenting a whole new dimension and it has provided a publishing tool for parenting as performance. And I think it's the same game, but it's being played by adults. So mm -hmm. it's vicarious. Uh, you know, and even I mean, I have all these connections on Facebook, all right? They're not necessarily friends, it's just over the years. Jason, it's the same way for you, I'm sure. 
where you pick up quote-unquote friends along the way. So you have the ability to monitor um, in your news feed as it pops up, your Facebook feed, literally hundreds if not thousands of people, whatever pops up. And, and I am always amazed at the number of parents who are doing this, you know, performance. Parenting is, is performance. And look what my kid baked today. Um, look at the trophy my kid brought home. Look at the record that my child just set. Now, again, I just there's just so much wrapped up in that in our current cultural context that to me is alarming because what that does is that, that basically says as a mom or as a dad, I'm feeling this pressure as well. But then it goes, this is my, I don't know, tell me if you agree with this, Amy, with what you see. But I, my belief is that then it goes and it it sends a message to the kids that my parents' love and time and attention to me is based on my performance, you know, to hit a certain to hit a certain mark. I mean, there's this, I think there's a fine line. I think we've become too proud of our kids. Mm-hmm. Can we say it that way? I mean, I think we're building up this sense of entitlement and hubris in our kids by doing this. I, I think there is, there definitely is an adult version of the, the pressure to compare that adolescents feel, adults feel similarly. Um, I think there's a lot of adolescents right now who don't have any idea what their parents post on Facebook about them because they're not on Facebook. The, the adolescents are not on Facebook as much. They may know that their parents are doing that, but they, they're not seeing it on a regular basis. Um, I do think it sends a significant message about this value of performance yeah. and um, how the parent, you know, is is potentially overvaluing that and yeah. sending the message that that's why that child is loved, but then also implicitly sending a message of pressure that they need to continue that level of performance in order to continue yeah. to continue to be loved. But I think kids so kids are aware. Kid, kids are aware every time you know the family is doing something, yeah. and it's all being recorded. Um, you know, sure. let's grab a photo of this. Just, so people aren't experiencing things; they're experiencing it through the viewfinder, let's say, or the smartphone. Yeah. Yeah. Far more pictures are yeah. taken okay. than used to be. Well, let's 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 turn the corner here. I mean, this is all so valuable. But what are some specific things, some specific messages, as someone who has worked with teenagers, someone who's been a mom, now a grandmother, and especially as a counselor, as a therapist, what are some very practical takeaways for for parents, and let's include youth workers in that as well? Because when they come into your office, now we're at the point where we're we're in the redemptive mode. We're trying to fix problems that have occurred. How can we derail these things before they happen you know we call it here the prophetic mode where you speak the truths of god's word and then the preventive mode where you you take all the steps you can to keep your kids from going down roads and avenues that are really dangerous some takeaways i think one of the most important things that parents and youth workers need to do is to build into adolescents a sense and a, a knowledge and a certainty of their identity in Christ and the, the worth and value that they take away from that, that they will have a strong sense of self 
um, a self-concept, which is what supports self-esteem. A self-concept is what we know about ourselves, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what I like to do, what I don't like to do, the things that I value, the things that are important. Those are, those are things that I know about myself. And self-esteem is built on how I feel about the things I know about myself. Um, so I think we need to build in a sense of self that is not based on performance, but is based on their their value as as a as a Christian as as a creation um, of of gods, um, but also just a sense of of who they are, and it's not based on comparison to somebody else that they have individual value and talents and skills and significance and something that they can contribute. That's good. I, I like that identity in Christ because we have so much identity talk now in our culture. You know, Jason and I talk about the sexual integrity initiative. You know, everything now hinges on sexual identity or gender identity. Yeah. And so identity is a hot word. But, you know, one of the, it, just in response to what you said, and, and I think this is a lifelong battle. You know, like I turned 60 in a couple of months and I still battle with this, you know, finding your identity in Christ and just Scotty Smith, I don't know if you're familiar with Scotty Smith, but he's always talking about, you know, preaching the gospel to yourself every day. And the gospel really, in many ways, is, you know, I don't deserve any of this, but God loves me in spite of it. And, you know, when you start to think of things that way, that's extremely freeing. It takes so much of this pressure off. And I think the most important thing about that is that God's view of them never changes. Yeah. Their friend's view of them could be gone tomorrow. Their positive view of them could, it's poof. And God's view of them never changes. And they can always come back to that as a source of their value yeah. and their worth. And that it's not based on what's going on around them yeah. about whether or not their friends like them today or like what they wore or gave them enough likes on yeah. Instagram. I, I like that. That's a, that's a great first one, you know, identity in Christ. That's a foundation for everything. What else do you have? I think the more that we can do in terms of activities within families, as well as activities within youth ministry, that just gives, um, gives adolescents freedom from being tethered to their devices make it clear that there's certain time frames that are going to be technology free um, encourage them to be present with each other um, maybe even help them have conversations with each other what we've seen is when adolescents gather in a room now if they're uncomfortable and they don't immediately see someone that they feel comfortable with they'll pull out their phone and look at their phone instead of taking the risk go up to talk to somebody and if that has very much become the norm. So I think encouraging them to be technology free um, and give them opportunities to do that. And I think within the home, it's not just a recommendation, it might be, need to be a rule. Yeah, that's and, great. And, and a lot of people think I, that's really a risky thing because you know parents yeah. and youth workers are sometimes afraid to do that because they don't want the hysteria that they expect. And the beauty of it is, like as you said, Amy, and I, again, Jason and I both said, uh, affirmed this, that when we talk to youth workers, if they're giving them space without it, 
you know, and everybody in the room, let's put it aside. They're discovering what they were made for, and they love it because they were made for it. You know, this ability to not be tethered, and it's not that technology is a bad thing. We just use it too much. We're too, like you said, tethered tethered to it. So, you know, to to experience that. Jason, you were going to say something. Well, I just might add to that is you said encourage conversation. It might need to be taught as well because the idea of conversation is just – not something that a lot of adolescents are comfortable with. They're comfortable with it if it's on their device. It's it's a little bit different when it's uh, uh, in a youth group setting and they don't mm-hmm. know anyone. So mm-hmm. having activities that actually not only promote but teach conversation. Yeah. I don't know how many times I'm, I'm talking to an adolescent and I'm teaching them how to simply introduce themselves to a stranger. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that a, a peer just to, to go up and say, hi, I'm Jason. And uh, I think that that is also another aspect to this that, that is not just, well, we've talked a lot about modeling. It's modeled, it's taught, it's, it's creating opportunity. There is research that is indicating that um, elementary school boys in particular and um, middle school age boys are experiencing a significant um, reduction in social skills. And it is being traced back to the use of, um, extensive use of gaming and connecting over devices that does not require face-to-face conversation and eye contact. And so some some research bears this out and that's in um, individuals Mm. that are younger than adolescents. But they're going to carry that into adolescence because they're not learning yeah. during that developmental time frame what they need to learn. Again, how old was that? That was first grade? It's elementary school mm. and wow. on into um, middle school age boys. They're doing some testing of social skills. Um, there also have been some indications um, in the book, The App Generation, written by Katie Davis and Howard Gardner. He's a longtime education professor at Harvard. She was a young protege of his. Um, and one of the things they investigated was intimacy. And they talked about how the use of apps, essentially technology, is impairing intimacy. And, and that is just the ability to connect on a deeper level. And one of the things that they used to measure that was a um, narcissism scale. And that there has been a measurable and significant increase in um, narcissism in um, succeeding generations of adolescents, late adolescents on into um, early young adulthood. And they do believe that's traceable to the use of technology. Mm. Amy, do you have, um, is there, how about one more bit of advice for the sake of time? Because uh, we want to turn the corner and wrap it mm-hmm. up here. But any, any, another good nugget. These are all great. And and I love this, and I and I hope people are listening to this because, you know, uh, if you take an ad, I'll get around to that at some point. I like what you said about intentionality earlier. Mm-hmm. When you hear this, do it. Yeah. You know, if we wait, it's going to be too late. I think that parents and youth workers need to really work hard to help adolescents understand the things that really have value. I think that technology and social media has really distorted our ability to measure that. 
because it it has placed this idea of the gaining of social capital via presence on social media at the top for an adolescent. And so their ability to really gauge and understand what is important, what is what is of real value, I think has been compromised because of the activities now in sort of the social arena seem to be of utmost important. Mm. And um, I know for us working in youth ministry, when we do have the opportunity to pull kids away from that, particularly on mission trips, it's kind of like they shake their heads really hard and go, whoa, wait a minute, this is what's important. I had the opportunity to serve. I served meals in a homeless shelter or I cleaned up trash in, you know, in the yard of a homeless shelter on a playground where kids can play. And um, I think that is, that is something that we really need to, again, using the word intentional, I think we need to be intentional about that, talking to them about what really matters and what's of value. You know what came to mind as you said that, as you talk about social capital, and we've always, for years, we've been talking through our Digital Kids Initiative about, you know, the likes, that's money in the bank. And I never thought till you said it that, you know, when you read the New Testament, it, it, the, perhaps the biggest idol that Jesus warns against besides ourselves is our stuff. And so materialism, you know, more is said in the New Testament about the dangers of money and wealth than about heaven and hell combined. And, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Jesus, Jesus brought that up. I mean, that's, that's like the idol. That's, that's just a big idol. And it, it's this kind of money in the bank, so, social capital, that it's almost like a it's almost like a new materialism, I think, mm-hmm. in, in some mm-hmm. ways. I have to think about that some more, but that thought crossed my mind here that this is a new, you know, you think of it that way in terms of idolatry, and we need to push through that. I could not agree more, um, and that is reflected in my conversations with adolescent girls, um, even the college students that I work with. Um, that is absolutely has the status of idol yeah in you their know lives. hey 30 years ago and i'll never forget this uh a young seminary student who at the time um was an intern in our church there in, in philadelphia who was being mentored by tim keller uh who was fairly unknown at that point shared shared with me uh something that was quite convicting that tim keller had taught him and said that uh you know keller said you tell me who or what it is you daydream about and i'll tell you who or what your god is and if you think about that in today's context, you know, what are kids thinking about 24-7? You know, it's my social media presence and how am I coming off? And so it does become an idol. It does become an they idol are, so we have to push through that. Yeah. They are posting with the response in mind. Yeah. They are not necessarily posting that which originates from their heart. They are posting with the response in mind. That's powerful. And that is, that is to powerful. Garner likes. And, and, and are we doing that as parents as well? Are we doing that? You know, well, what, what, yeah. and that's when we talk about, you know, questions to ask before you post. Always pause before you hit send, reply, post. You know, why am I doing this? Does this mm-hmm. matter? Am I trying to glorify myself or am I working as a Christian uh, to bring honor and glory to God? So that's a good thought. Jason, any, anything you want to ask as we finish up or a final statement? Well, I, I just think that, I mean, these last three are just right on the, the button. I mean, I just think that they're, 
they're 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 concise they're helpful um and i just think that anyone that's listening to this is going to be able to take these three and be able to to really um whether they're a parent or whether they're a youth worker taking it to parents it's going to be a tool so i really hope that you've written them down because uh and and real quick what, what do we have we have um it, it's a lot more than um uh serving of self it's not based on on performance uh creating activities right uh, activities and families activities and youth groups engaging conversation maybe it's being needing to be taught and then the idea of social capital and i just think that well even what you just said um and brought up is is something for us to really ponder um, because uh, self and stuff were those two things that jesus spoke often about and i think that they're it's it's just important for us to remember uh maybe as we close out uh, maybe one last thought um but uh, you know, earlier we were we, offline. We were talking a little bit about um, uh, truths uh, and lies that that social media can tell us. And what are some just real quick uh, truths that we can um, say about social media and, and its impact um, and and use uh, as we just close out this time together? I think the biggest lie that they're absorbing and then I'll get to the truth. Um, I think the biggest lie is that their value is based on what everybody else thinks about them. And and usually appearance, right? And very, very often appearance yeah. because that is what people are, are looking at. Um, and that could not be farther from the truth of God's what God values in them. Um, and I, I think that is, you know, juxtaposing those two is really, really important. And, and parents need to ask, what lies are my adolescents absorbing from all of the activity and all of the time that they spend online? Um, what are they coming to believe about themselves? Um, and then get back to truth of who they are in God's eyes and the unchangeable quality of that. That's so good. That is, that is so good. Amy, thank, thank you so much for, I'm glad you've studied all this. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. And this is not going to be the last time we have you on. It's the first time. And uh, I love the practical nature of this that really flows out of your, you know, your heart um, to please God and your heart for kids, uh, which we've seen over the years. And it, it's just a joy to have you thinking about these things and helping us think about them Christianly as well. So thank you. It's good, good to have you here. Thanks. Well, folks, we are going to uh, put a bunch of links up on the page. So when you're done listening to this, you can scroll down on our homepage for this podcast. And for this episode, we'll give you links to resources and books that have been mentioned. And in addition, I just want to let you know that we'll also include a link to our Digital Kids Initiative. This is a special initiative that we have here at CPYU that we created to begin to address these things in very practical, hope-filled, godly ways. And there are loads and loads of resources on there that are being added to all the time. So take some time to check that out. It's at digitalkidsinitiative.com. And again, look for the link to that. Jason, thanks so much again for being a part of this. It's fun to do this with you. 
Um, Always a blast. Yeah, even though you make fun of me all the time, but that's all right. Um, that's okay. You make fun yeah, of me too. Yeah, I know. It's just, that's that's the great joy of this. So, <laughs> all right. And it was a great, great time having Amy on today. Yes, so thank yes, you, Amy, so much yeah. for being here. You're welcome. Awesome. Thanks for the invitation. All right, folks. Thanks so much, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again in just a little bit of time uh, on another edition, another episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.